Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Den amerikanske psykolog og neuroforsker Carl Hart er noget helt andet, end vi er vant til at tale med her på denne podcast. Jeg hørte ham for nylig forklare, hvorfor man bør legalisere narkotika. Og jeg er ikke specielt vild med narkotika, og jeg har ikke nogen romantik omkring, at man bare skal legalisere narkotika, så bliver vi alle sammen fri og lykkelige. Men han havde et argument, som jeg synes var fuldstændig uafviseligt. Argumentet var, at det er en del af vores samfund, at vi har ret til at forfølge vores egen lykke. Det står simpelthen i den amerikanske uafhængighedserklæring, The Pursuit of Happiness. Og Carl Hart han sagde, at langt de fleste mennesker, der bruger stoffer, de bliver ikke narkomaner. De ender ikke på gaden. De bliver ikke sådan nogen, hvis tilværelse falder sammen på grund af narkotika. De bruger faktisk bare narkotika til at få et ordentligt skud op i hovedet, til at få deres tanker et vildt sted hen. Og så sagde han, en del af lykken i vores samfund, det er retten til at kunne forandre sin bevidsthed. Efterfølgende var hans argument, at vi måler alting i plusser og minuser. Ja, biler kører rigtig mange mennesker ned hvert år. Ja, biler forurener af helvede til. Men nej, vi forbyder dem ikke, fordi vi skal bruge dem til at transportere os. Ja, våben er noget rigtig lort. Våben slår mennesker ihjel. Men nej, vi kan ikke forestille os en verden uden krig, derfor tillader vi våben. Ja, alkohol kan være rigtig skadeligt. Der er familier, der går i stykker. Der er mænd, der slår deres koner. Der er folk, der bliver sådan nogle helt andre personer, end de ville være, fordi de drikker alkohol. Det kan jeg tale med om. Men nej, vi forbyder det ikke, fordi alkohol er også anledning til fest og glæde på alle mulige måder i vores samfund. Den udregning gælder bare ikke for narkotika, siger Karl Hart. Der taler man aldrig om plusserne. Der taler man aldrig om det gode, som narkotika gør. Der taler man kun om det negative. Og det er lige meget om det er tv-serier som The Wire eller Breaking Bad, eller om det er demokratiske eller republikanske politikere. Man taler om narkotika som noget negativt, der skal fjernes. Og det har vidtgående ødelæggende konsekvenser for vores samfund, sagde Karl Hart. Det blev jeg så optaget af, det argument, så jeg besluttede mig for, at ham skal vi fandme tale med her i langsomme samtaler. Jeg studerede lidt Karl Harts biografi. Han er faktisk født og opvokset i et rigtig, rigtig hårdt kvarter uden for Miami, det der hedder The Project. Så kom han i militæret, hvor han var fire år og blev en karakter og lærte at tage sig sammen, som han selv siger. Og da han så var færdig i militæret, der besluttede han sig for, at han ville gøre noget for det kvarter, han voksede op i. Og det var, at han ville bekæmpe narkotika. Derfor begyndte han at studere narkotika. Og det var først ud fra en antagelse om, at narkotika var med til at smadre livet for de sorte i USA. Det endte bare med, at han faldt ud af noget helt andet. Og da han blev over 40, der begyndte han faktisk selv at tage blandt andet heroin, fordi det hører med til hans pursuit of happiness. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Copenhagen and Denmark. And uh, especially... Hello to you, Professor Carl Hart, who's with us from New York. Thank you so very, very much for taking your time and talking to us tonight. I am happy to be here. Thank you very much. Her følger min samtale med Carl Hart, hvor han folder sit argument ud, og vi tager den hele vejen hen for enden af hans vilde, men uafviselige og interessante resonemang. I read your book, Drug Use for Grown-ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. And I'm usually not a big believer in free drugs, or I didn't think I was. And, I, and I'm an old alcoholic myself. I've been sober for 13 years. And I, I thought I was pretty much settled on my views uh, on that matter. But I was really convinced by your book. I thought it was a wonderful 
And danger is in the best sense of the word book because it challenges some of our conceptions of the social order. And it challenges some of the limitations that we put on each other because we're afraid of what might happen if we allow people to pursue their, their happiness. So I thought it was a very, very important book. Um, and I always thought of one thing is that I'm an alcoholic. And when we talk about me and alcohol, I'm usually the problem. It's never alcohol. You know, alcohol is legitimate. And because we see a lot of people use it for pleasure. And I take a lot of pleasure in watching other people get drunk and have fun. But when it comes to drugs, it's the other way around. You know, it's always that the drugs are the problem and there are no legitimate benefits from drugs. And if people, they get medicated, they say, well, I don't get high. I don't get high. I, I don't have... I, I don't have any fun, please. please. Like, like having fun or having a good time is, is absolutely illegitimate. Oh, no, no, it's just a medication. I have such severe pains. Why do you think that is? That it's, I think drugs are the only thing that we see in that, in that light and in that perspective. Well, I think drugs uh, serve an important function in communities. And that function is that drugs are scapegoats in that um, whenever there are problems that we don't understand in society, it's easy to blame drugs for those problems. And so it has made it difficult for people to embrace any sort of positive effects associated with drugs. Uh, another sort of function that drugs serves in our societies is that drugs are easy targets for filmmakers. When you wanna make a movie and you wanna show a villain you show a drug dealer and or if you want to show somebody with severe problems, you show someone who is struggling with drug addiction. Uh, comedians in our society, they need the subject of drugs in order to uh, be the butt of jokes. Uh, oftentimes these jokes are adolescents and uh, they haven't grown up like we have grown up. Uh, and so that's why one of the things that's that's why the book is called Drug Use for Grownups. Um, this is a subject for uh, grownups and not adolescents, but the way we've been talking about drugs in our societies have been in a way that adolescents think of drugs uh, in this fun uh, or bad, uh, this good or bad goofy sort of sense of the word. And of course, nothing like is really like that in life. There is nuance, uh, but when it comes to drugs, we haven't been allowed to express that nuance. And you write in the book that actually you were under the assumption that drugs were responsible for a lot of social ills in your own society. And that's how you started actually studying drugs because you wanted to, to eradicate or help eradicate crack from your own community. So, so tell us about how you started studying and investigating this uh, subject matter. Yeah, uh, maybe about 30 years ago or so, um, and just a little over 30, maybe 35 years ago, crack cocaine had come to the United States. And uh, crack cocaine, it's just smokable cocaine. It's not uh, anything different. But when it appeared, we thought it was this new form of cocaine that was more dangerous, more addictive, and it was causing all of these problems. Or so I thought. And so I thought that the uh, crack was the reason that my community was struggling. Um, I wasn't sophisticated enough to think about the larger economic sort of uh, policies that were in play. Those were the real concern. Uh, um, and so I devoted myself to studying crack cocaine uh, and other drugs, the neurobiology of these drugs, so I could understand how to treat drug addiction. 
And I thought if I learned something about the brain and treating drug addiction, then I could solve the problems that faced my community. So I went on a journey for more than 30 years of, of studying drugs. Um, and so uh, uh, that journey has kind of um, ended with me realizing that I got hoodwinked. I was lied to. And, um, and I'm trying to set the record straight with this new book. What changed your mind? What, what were the data and the facts? Because it's a process that is vividly described in, in the book, but there must have been some almost sh shocking revelations for you along the way. Oh, there were. Uh, I mean, there were studies that I did myself, uh, for example, or along with my colleagues. Uh, for example, um, we were told that crack cocaine was so addictive that people who were addicted to the drug would do anything to get another hit. Uh, we did one study, for example, where we gave people an opportunity to make choices between the hit of crack cocaine and some monetary amount, something uh, like $5. Um, and what we found was when you give people a choice between uh, a drug and money, just as another alternative, Uh, the choice to take drug substantially decreases as you increase the money. When you raise from something like $1 where they would take the drug and um, all of the time, whereas you increase it to $5, they'll take the drug and the money about half the time uh, each on each uh, of those occasions. But if you raise it to something like $20, they almost never take the drug. What that told me was that uh, drug taking behavior functioned just like any other behavior. It wasn't unusual. It wasn't uh, so robust that it couldn't be disrupted by the regular sort of laws uh, or principles of behavioral change. Um, and so that was a revelation for me. Another revelation was that uh, the vast majority of people who use any drug, whether it's crack cocaine, whether it's heroin, whether it's marijuana, the vast majority of users of any of those drugs are not addicted. Um, and that was a revelation. I didn't realize that. I thought most people who use drugs were addicted. Um, and it's like uh, there are as many as 30% of users will become addicted on some of these drugs. But still, th that says that if the vast majority of users are not becoming addicted, then we can't blame drugs for drug addiction. We have to look at other sort of factors like psychosocial factors. Uh, whether or not the person has a co-occurring psychiatric illness or some other illness, whether or not the person is employed, uh, the, the person's level of um, uh, responsibility skill set, all of these sort of things play an important role. And I think that was also very surprising to me because I grew up with this narrative about the crack epidemic in America and how it was causing a lot of yeah, social ills and And, and misery, and actually, you describe in the book that that the numbers don't match. That that unemployment rose before crack hit, and that I think even crime rates went went up. So, so this is actually changing kind of recent American history, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great point. For example, crack really appeared in America in about 1985. But yet crack was blamed for high unemployment rates and the highest unemployment rates in the United States were in 1982, three years before crack became widely available or available in the country. And then when you think about uh, violent crimes, if you take a, cr uh, a crime like murder, homicide, 
Uh, we had peak homicide rates in 1980 before crack hit. Uh, we did have peaks in like 1990, but these peaks tend to go with um, the, the correlation of the ages uh, of young males and more so than the availability of crack. And so uh, the numbers just didn't line up with what the stories were being told. So who are, if you say we have this narrative that is misrepresenting what is actually happening, who are the losers of this narrative? Who, who's, who are paying the costs for, for, for this? Well, um, think about this. Uh, when the United States uh, elected Donald Trump as president, uh, there are a lot of people around the globe who were upset, concerned, worried, um, uh, and rightfully so. And so when you say, who are the losers, uh, the global community loses because the United States uh, went on this sort of war on drugs projection. And, and as a result, we exported our war on drugs abroad. And so uh, the losers are the general people in the society because uh, the war on drugs costs uh, in the United States about $40 billion a year. Uh, and so the taxpayers are losing. Uh, people lose their civil liberties. Um, and and in, in other countries, a similar sort of thing happens. Uh, and, and so that's a, the, 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 those are major losers. And people who use drugs, of course, they lose because um, they will be thrown in jail and they lose their freedom and their liberty. Uh, and so uh, a number of us lose in society. And then Uh, people like me as a scientist, we lose in terms of credibility because we kind of promote this nonsense. And then people who are actually using drugs know that it's nonsense. And so me as a scientist, I lose credibility. I think it was quite surprising to me. I didn't think of that before because I grew up in the 70s. So I grew up with a lot of the American culture of the late 60s, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. So I always thought that that popular culture from America was kind of idolizing drugs and, and purple haze and chasing the dragon. I grew up with that. Uh, but, but actually you write in your book that popular culture has also been scapegoating drugs, also been depicting drugs as the cause of a lot of ills. And I, I thought of, you, you mentioned Breaking Bad, uh, that, that was very popular here as well. I thought of another series that I really liked, The Wire, where, where, yes. where, where they're also like, there are no positive descriptions of drugs there. And I thought of this movie that came out about Amy Winehouse. I was very annoyed yes. by that movie because it didn't give us like just 10 happy seconds. So it made her an absolute failure as a character because yeah. she just succumbed to something that was negative. I, I'm very surprised by this actually that popular culture has been part of something that I would think of as not liberal, but as conservative. Yeah, uh, so it's okay to say uh, Jim Morrison used drugs or Jimi Hendrix, as long as you end with this cautionary tale that they die because of some drug. And then when you look at why they actually die, you realize they didn't really die because of the drug, they died because of ignorance. Jim Morrison uh, died because of an alcohol-related problem, whereas Jimi Hendrix, of course, he, he took some sleeping pills trying to get sleep, as you might imagine, given the pressure that he was under. 
but he just talked too much. And he didn't know that the barbiturates were uh, the window, the therapeutic window, as we call it, uh, it's, it's fairly low. If he had a benzodiazepine, he might still be here with us today. And then when we think about somebody like Amy Winehouse, uh, just a brilliant artist who had all of these pressures from all of these sharks and these people who were uh, users. And we don't talk about how they used this poor woman and, and the pressures that she was under. Instead, we talk about her drug use, which she didn't die of her drug use. It was her sort of alcohol use. Again, not really understanding that alcohol withdrawal could be so dangerous because we don't say that very much in society. Instead, we vilify these other drugs. And so, yes, you can talk about drugs in terms of pop culture, in terms of our artists, as long as you end with the cautionary tale. So when we think about uh, the Rolling Stones, for example, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, we don't really talk about those guys are like the, the longest standing band in the history of the world. We don't <laughs> talk about that. And they celebrated their drug use. And Keith Richards is, is known for saying that he didn't have a drug problem. He had a police problem. And he was absolutely right. Um, and, and it's like, you put his record against any musician and he comes out on top in terms of longevity. But you don't hear this sort of thing. You only hear the negative about Keith Richards' drug use uh, because that's what society expects you to do. And that's what society only allows you to do. I think there's a, there's a, what I would call a minimalist argument in your book saying, well, we criminalize a lot of people by criminalizing drugs. We spend a lot of money that we shouldn't have spent, and we put a lot of people in, in prison. Uh, and, and we won't, this, we're fighting a war that we won't win, and we'll make a misery out of a lot of people because we treat them as criminals. And we have a taboo about something that I think you say that 32 million Americans use illegal drugs within the last month. But there's also the very appealing maximalist argument that actually we have a right to pursue our happiness that we have a right to alter our, our, our mental capacity. And I think that is a very, that's a very interesting argument. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I, I took that argument from um, the United States' Declaration of Independence, uh, the founding document of the country. And the document kind of lays out the ideals, uh, the promises that we make to our citizens. And the one in, important promises are uh, we all are guaranteed this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not happiness, but the pursuit of happiness. And um, in that document, it says that government should be created to protect these rights, not restrict them. Now, when you think about drug use, there are a number of people who are exercising their liberty when they decide to use drugs, or they are pursuing their happiness when they decide to use drugs. So technically, uh, drug use is a guaranteed right. It's so long as you do not disrupt anybody else's ability to pursue their rights. Um, and so that's where I've taken that argument from. And I actually wanted Americans, the ones who, especially the ones who say things like, we are the freest country in the world without ever having been anywhere or without <laughs> uh, actually having thought about 
what that really means. And, and so um, that's why I, I uh, uh, stress that argument, because I really wanted people to understand what this issue of pursuing happiness really is and what this issue of liberty is. Um, uh, and, and also this notion that you don't have the right to uh, prevent anyone else from pursuing their liberty is so long as they're not uh, disrupting anybody else's liberty. And then I was hoping that people would think about these things in a way that we would all treat each other better, that we would take care of each other, whether we use drugs or not. But the, this notion of pursuing happiness, uh, making sure we protect other people's rights, uh, this is the type of society that I wanted to live in. And, and I, I think about these things in part uh, uh, because of my drug use, because of what I know about uh, wanting to be more magnanimous and uh, more forgiving and more accepting of other people. Um, and so I tried to convey that in the book and I wanted other people to uh, think about this as well. Of course, the title of the book is Drug Use for Grown-Ups. And I, I, I immediately thought that who actually are the grown-ups and who are the non-grown-ups? And, and I thought of my friends who, are, who I know are not grown-ups and they would think of themselves as grown-ups immediately. Uh, and, and because you're not saying uh, give all drugs to all people all the time. That is not the, the, the point in the book. But if we follow your line of reasoning, how would we establish some criteria for who are the grown-ups who can administer taking drugs and, and, and who are the non-grown-ups? Yeah, um, this is a difficult question for societies in general. Uh, we think about alcohol use. Uh, many of our societies have, we have an age requirement. Uh, we say you have to be 16 to 21, whatever that, some countries is 16, other countries is 21 years old. Uh, other uh, other sort of things where we try to determine who's a grown up when we think about driving an automobile. There's not only an age requirement, but there's also a competency requirement such that you have to pass an exam. Um, and so those sorts of things could be done uh, with drugs in the same way. We can have an age requirement. We can have a competency requirement. And when we think about this issue of being a grown up, um, being a grown-up is not necessarily a static sort of uh, process or construct as I'm, as I'm thinking about it. It is a dynamic construct in that, you know, sometimes we are more grown-up uh, than other times. Uh, and that's okay. We all are uh, uh, works in progress. Um, and, and so that's how I think about being a grown-up. So, so, and what are the, because you're, you're quite specific in the book about, about the circumstances of taking drugs, about the, how they usually administrate them and the setting, what, what are the good circumstances? Yeah, so uh, we can imagine a person uh, in a country that have draconian drug laws and such that you get caught with some drug, you will go to prison. And if this person is using drugs in so the shadows of society, in some dark alley, trying, trying to be away from everyone else, that person is increasing the likelihood of having negative effects because you are paranoid about not getting caught. And then you're in the shadows and you're doing this, this behavior where you have little input from other people who might know more than you. 
So you set yourself up to have a negative or a less than positive experience. Uh, so the drug use that I was trying to describe is in these places where the, the drug policy is not so uh, draconian or prohibitive or restrictive and where people can get their drugs tested to make sure that the purity, the quality of the drug is good. Uh, their, it, the drug contains no contaminants. They know the dose. Um, they also uh, have a setting in which drug use is not condemned and looked down upon. Um, and so that increases the likelihood of the person having a more positive experience. And I think something that also made quite an impression on me is that to describe social situations that very often we describe, we see drugs and films as something that people do alone in isolated circumstances. It's their personal addiction, they hide away. And, and, and thus we, we, I think it, we have some immoral connotations with, with drug. We think of people as selfish, as lying. And, but you actually describe some situations that are social and, and that it enhances some qualities of the personality that we usually cherish morally. Yeah, wow. so when I, when I think about uh, the drug use that I described, I described drug use with my wife and our friends, and we have these social settings uh, with people with whom we love, we care about, and we are uh, having great discussions about uh, being better people, about uh, being responsible citizens in the global world. Um, so those sorts of that, those are the sort of settings that uh, adults and grown-ups uh, uh, engage in drug use. Just like someone might have some really good wine, they invite friends over, and they have great discussions. Um, that's the situation um, that uh, uh, I think of as someone who is a 54-year-old man. Um, that's how I behave. I'm not an adolescent, and and that's how many of my friends behave. And that's what you would expect from anyone who has grown up. There's a phrase in the book that I find really remarkable. Uh, not that I haven't heard it before, but I didn't hear it in this context before. You speak about coming out of the closet. And that was important to you personally. But it also seems that it's a virtue in public to come out of the, the closet as a drug user. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because of the disproportionate negative characterization of drug use uh, in the public, in pop culture. Uh, we only see drug use in terms of someone who has a problem, someone who's addicted, someone who is screwing up. And so I know from the data that the vast majority of people who use drugs don't have a problem. They are responsible people. They go to work. They take care of their families. I also know the illicit drug trade is a multi-billion dollar industry. That is, uh, it, it, it requires a lot of money. That means that poor people or people on the margins of society alone could not support that industry. So you need people who are upper middle to upper class people, people who are plugged into the society. But that's not the view of the drug user that we have. And so I have... I was, in, I was encouraging people to come out of the closet in order to change this view and help us have a more representative view, number one. And number two, I wanted people to come out of the closet so that we would take some of the pressure off of the poor person who, is, who has been persecuted or vilified 
simply for using drugs, uh, simply for doing exactly the same thing that I do. Um, I asked in the book, what kind of man would I be if I allowed someone to be persecuted uh, for doing the same thing that I'm doing? I would be a coward. And so I was asking people to come out of the closet and not be cowards in order to stand on behalf, stand up on behalf of the people who have been vilified. What were the personal consequences for you? You're a public figure, you're an authority, you have, not only do you have students, you have students who have parents who paid a lot for their kids to, to study. What, what were the personal consequences of you coming out as a drug user? Well, uh, you know, there are people who, for example, um, um, I get invited to speak at universities. I've been disinvited uh, uh, from speaking at some universities. Um, people have uh, attacked me in the press. Um, there are uh, colleagues who uh, may have said negative things about me or And, and, the, and the negative consequences uh, may continue. I mean, and, and I don't even know what all of the negative consequences may be, but that's not important. The important thing is that uh, I live uh, in, in the most honest way that I possibly can. And what, it would also, what, what is also important is that I know what I'm doing is right. And I know that history will exonerate me uh, from any of those sort of negative consequences. And I have children too, and I have to set an example uh, for my children in terms of uh, how you live your life as a person with integrity. I was very impressed by the way you described it. Also, it's a drug user story that I never heard before because you started doing some of the drugs relatively late. I think you were 40 when you did heroin, isn't that correct? Yeah, actually, heroin was uh, maybe 49, uh, 50, <laughs> damn near. Uh, but, you know, you're right. I didn't really start to, like, use drugs uh, until the after the age of 40. Uh, by that time, I had, I had published dozens of papers in the scientific literature on these drugs, and I had I published textbooks and, and, and those sorts of things on drugs. And so... I had a, a, a considerable uh, amount of knowledge on this topic before I actually engaged in drug use. I, I would always be afraid because I have been drinking so much in the past and I lost myself. So I would always be afraid that for a period I could control it when everything was going fine. But if I hit a life crisis, if something happened, you know, that it would take a character and a strength to administer it and just get the, the happiness out of it. But when I became a weak person and a little person, and I know life does that to me and does that, aren't you afraid of hitting a life crisis and what it will do to you then? Or, well, or just weak moments in life? Well, we all just had this pandemic. <laughs> you know, this was, <laughs> a, this was an awful moment for mo many of us. Um, I, I, I guess I'm not... Uh, I'm not uniquely afraid of like drug use. I mean, uh, when we think about some people say, well, you know, aren't you afraid that it's like the drug will be so good that it takes over? You know, for me, the, the best thing still remains the sexual orgasm. And, you know, it would be like me saying, 
uh, aren't you afraid of having uh, the orgasm being too overwhelming that maybe you shouldn't do this? Um, uh, yeah, you know, it might be, it might get to that point, but uh, I'm willing to take that risk because life is not without risk. And as you pointed out at the start, you have these risk to benefit uh, calculations or analysis that we make in everyday life. And this is just one of them. And I know as someone who has to be a responsible person, um, I just have to make sure that I am constantly evaluating my behavior, the impact of my behavior on other people, uh, the impact of my behavior on my family, all of those sorts of things I, I need to constantly evaluate. It's just a part of being a human and uh, uh, a conscientious human. Aren't you uh, concerned if people say, well, we have uh, Carl Hart. He's a very, very strong character. He grew up in tough neighborhood outside Miami. He was four years in the army. He made this brilliant academic career. He's proven to be an extraordinary character and he can do this, but, but other people can't do this. And when they look at him, they think, well, I can do this too. So you said, the wrong example, I'm not saying you're doing it because I think that we should always put our best sides out in public to inspire others. So, so I'm not saying, I'm not judging you on that, but I was saying this would be something people would ask you that they think they could do like you and they end up in the gutter. No, uh, you're absolutely right. But uh, let's just think about, um, I, I don't know, we can think about somebody who uh, participates in some particularly dangerous activity, skiing, and they're really good at skiing. Uh, I think, I mean, I really marvel at their skills, uh, but I know I can't do that. And so I would be stupid to try to do what some of these folks can do on a ski slope. And, and so uh, the persons themselves have some responsibility. Uh, they can't say that, for example, that they're going to engage in exactly the same type of drug use as I do, particularly in this day and age where the, many of these drugs are illegal. You can't do that. I have a certain knowledge that they don't have. I mean, if they put the same kind of work that I put into this, of course, um, um, more power to them. But uh, the book is not a call for people to behave as I do. The book is a call for people to question what we are doing in society on this topic. I think I, I, that I'm, we might see some tendencies that the conversation is changing, but I think it's different from country to country. And you, you mentioned something that I find very funny, it's psychedelic elitism, that if it's a psychedelic drug, then it's kind of legitimate and it's intellectual and it's academic. And, and doesn't this conversation about MDMA that is kind of exploring your, your mentality and, and exploring your mental space, isn't that kind of opening for a new way of talking about drugs in general, not just this psychedelic elitism, which is a wonderful expression? Yes, I think so. I think um, MDMA, ayahuasca, uh, there's also psilocybin, a number of these drugs, people, the psychedelic drugs, people have um, uh, kind of used them or put them in a category uh, on their own. And that's why I called it psychedelic exceptionalism or elitism. Um, on the, so we have to be careful. On the one hand, we celebrate the fact that we're able to uh, look at these drugs in a more objective way. That's a, that's a great 
uh, sort of turn of events that are that's occurring. But on the other hand, we have to be careful when we start to talk about these drugs as if they are somehow morally superior to other drugs like heroin or cocaine. Uh, and so um, in, the, in the book, I was trying to make sure that the reader understood this tension and understood that I was hoping that the reader would not fall uh, into the trap of uh, disparaging other drugs while holding up others as being uh, worthy of high praise. And I, I think you made that point very convincing that we kind of reproduce social hierarchies uh, hierarchies when we look at drugs say well this is for the brave people and this is this is for the brilliant people and this is for the losers and then we say you have loser drugs and 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 you have winner drugs but sometimes when i've been listening to with my kids the joe rogan show i think <laughs> that there's another conversation out there and i'm not you know into this donald trump uh, the mainstream media are lying but i think the fact that you have new shows that people can make their own youtube channels you have something independent going on and maybe the old order is um, is crumbling. I certainly hope so. Um, Joe Rogan is one of my most favorite people, um, uh, and I really dig what he does. Um, <laughs> and and you know he has some guests on that I don't necessarily agree with, but I am so happy they have a platform, and then we can have these discussions, and we could um, argue, and the best evidence wins. That's what it's all about. Uh, and so um, uh, I am so happy that Joe was there. Uh, and, and, and in fact, Joe, I don't know, maybe five years ago or so, uh, invited me to do his show for the first time. I've done it, uh, I guess, uh, three times now. And I, I always just have a great time uh, speaking with him because he is so uh, open-minded. And he, um, the show, whenever you talk to him, it's not about him. It's about the person with whom he's speaking. Um, and, and so I'm so happy that people like him are out there. I just have two more questions uh, for you because sure. you, Absolutely. You, you, have a, you, have a, you have a flight to catch. The first question is that when I stopped drinking 13 years ago, I promised myself that when I became 70, that I would allow myself to take a, to take a new drug. To, I would introduce a new drug to myself because I saw, thought at that time that I would be settled enough in your words, grown up. And, you know, I'm the kind of person, I, I never did drugs because I was so afraid of what it did to me. I smoked a lot of marijuana, but I always liked the picture of Mycroft Holmes lying in the opium cages in, in London. What, what drug would you recommend to me when I'm 70? And I, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want, uh, I, I wouldn't want something getting me too excited because I'm, I'm a, an energetic person. I would like to chill and, and to, to, you know, be easy and quiet and just chill with my imagination. What do you recommend for me? You're the expert. Well, you know, um, it depends. If you're going to do a drug with your significant other, um, uh, MDMA is outstanding in that capacity. Um, um, but there is a drug that's uh, a little more chill than MDMA, but produces a lot of effects like MDMA, 6-APB. Um, that's a great uh, drug to share with a loved one and to uh, have an intimate evening uh, and reflect on your life and your, uh, your behavior in the world and the impact of your behavior on other people to help you be more open, more magnanimous, forgiving, 
so the MDMA, 6-APB, they're great for that sort of thing. Thank you. I'll, I'll take, I have 23 years, so I'll remember, but maybe I'll celebrate when I'm 60. Maybe I can't wait after having read your, <laughs> read your book. I said 30 years. So the next question, and that will be my last question, is I always tell, tell my kids, you can drink and you can smoke marijuana, but don't do any drugs because I'm so scared of you becoming addicted. Uh, I'm so scared of you becoming addicted. I know that drug use for grown-ups is okay, but you're not grown-ups. On the other hand, I also know it's not within my reach. You know, I don't have the authority because there's, my daughter is 19 in two weeks. So what do you think I should tell my daughter if she's 19 and she says she wants to do drugs? Yeah, so my youngest kid is 20. And so, uh, of course, I have this issue and concern. Uh, we don't particularly talk about drugs, uh, although we, we have. My kids have come with me and seen me do science and give drugs to people as part of my research. They've seen the research. Uh, so we do have some discussions about drugs, but not many. Uh, the main thing we uh, talk about is what kind of person uh, I want them to be. I want them to be caring people. I want them to be responsible humans. Uh, I want them to take care of other people in their society. I want them to contribute to their society. And that's it. You know, those are the things that I emphasize. Whether they use a drug or not, I don't really care. That's not important to me. It's like saying, uh, well, I don't want you to play this video game or I don't want you to engage in this sexual behavior. It doesn't matter to me. The most important thing is that you are being a responsible contributor to your society, your community, uh, to the global community. Uh, and, and so we emphasize these long-term goals, these, these actually more lofty goals, as opposed to some narrow focus on some narrow behavior. That's not what I would recommend to parents because you have missed the boat if you're doing that. It's more important what kind of person Uh, your young people are. Well, thank you. I think that's a very, very helpful advice. You just reminded me of something very, very important there. Thank you so much, Carl Hart. We're very grateful that you took your time to talk to us. You've been an inspiration and I want to recommend your book to everyone who's following us tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you for the interest. I really appreciate it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Det var så min samtale med Carl Hart. I næste uge der skal vi tale med en, som har været en kæmpe held for Dagbladet Information i årtier. Det er den belgiske politiske filosof Chantal Mouffe, som sammen med Ernesto Laclau skrev et af den nye venstrefløjsteoris hovedværker for mange år siden. Og siden i de senere år har skrevet om, hvorfor venstrefløjen har brug for en populisme, hvis venstrefløjen skal europe det momentum, vi er i nu. Det bliver rigtig sjovt og rimelig progressivt. Det kan jeg godt love nu. Jeg håber, vi høres ved der. Tak for nu.